Here's your host of Sound Off, Brad Bennett. Yes, it is that time of the month, folks, where we invite Pete Wood. Well, actually, Pete Wood comes into our studios the last Wednesday of every month and brings with some of the most interesting, exciting guests that I have ever heard. And I think today is going to be very, very fun and a great show. Uh, Peter, do you want to introduce Emily? Thank you once again, folks out there willing to take time out of your day and listen about the timber industry one form or another. And and this uh, Emily is one of those guests that I never knew a few months ago. I met her actually out in Maine at an American Loggers Council annual meeting, and I missed her speaking the day before or two days before that because I was traveling to get there. And uh, Henry Schoenbeck from Wisconsin said, uh, what did you think of that lady that spoke the other day? I said, what are you talking about? I was traveling. And he said, you got to meet this lady. And I said, okay. Uh, Emily Joe Williams is her name out of South Carolina. And uh, what happened is I, he told me she's a lady, a bird lady that talked about birds and that. Well, <laughs> immediately what goes to my mind is hopefully not too many people. I'm glad nobody could read your mind at the time. And the um, thinking, okay, this is either a setup or a joke or something. Yeah. <laughs> a, a bird lady <laughs> at a loggers conference. Well, I go over and she, Henry introduced me to, to her. But in my mind, before I got there, I'm thinking, this is going to be a lady like Mini Pearl with a price tag on her hat, drives around a Subaru <laughs> Outback, has $3,000 binoculars that are pulling on her neck so much it hurts, and a $25,000 camera ready to pull out any time she wants to take pictures. And everything I thought about her before I got there blew up as soon as I met her. <laughs> everything. I thought, dang, good thing nobody knew my thoughts at the time. But anyway, she was sweet, nice. We had a great conversation and got to know her a little bit. And I think she could have told me off and left me right there. And I thought, I had a great time visiting with this lady because it was just the opposite <laughs> of what I thought. But anyway, Emily Hales from South Carolina. She is the VP of the American Bird Conservancy. That's not, I think it's uh, international some, but anyway. And uh, Emily goes by EJ, and so it's easy to remember. And she is just a sweetheart of a lady. And we're going to talk about birds and how the timber industry is needed by them as well as much needed by everybody else. So, uh, EJ, are you there? I'm here, Peter. Good, good, good. Did I, did I describe <laughs> what I thought, or am I... <laughs> <laughs> I would say I'm eating crow that day, but I better not. <laughs> yeah, true. Yeah. <laughs> no, um, yeah, maybe I'm glad I didn't know all that was going on in your head, but um, I'm glad I dispelled some of your, um, you know, your initial thoughts about what a, a bird lady might be. <laughs> Pretty much instantly when we started talking, I thought, wow. I never really knew, and then it was a great conversation. You have a lot of information, a lot of stories, and about migration of birds and how the timber industry is needed by the by the birds and that. Could you uh, tell the folks a little bit about yourself, and then we'll get into that? Sure. So um, I'm I'm a wildlife biologist by by training and profession, and I work for American Bird Conservancy, and we're um, a nonprofit organization, and our mission is to conserve native birds and their habitat across the Americas. So we work from Canada all through to the U.S., down into Mexico and Central and South America and in the Caribbean. And we work with lots of partners and, um, you know, different government groups, state, federal agencies, um, other nonprofit organizations. And we just focus on, you know, 
creating good habitats for birds. We have folks that focus on the major threats to birds, like free-ranging cats and, um, you know, poorly placed wind. Um, some of the, you know, really nasty insecticides can be harmful to birds and other wildlife. So those are some of the things that we work on. Um, and most of my work is with, you know, partners trying to either create or manage or restore the habitats that birds need. So you work closely with other businesses, organizations, to try and help preserve what the bird, basically the bird uh, uh, conservancy, correct? Yeah, yeah. We're just trying to create the kind of um, conditions that are good for birds. And, you know, with in the U.S., there's over 1,200 species of birds, so it's really diverse. Um, and, you know, a lot of birds need forests. And, you know, there's birds that need grasslands and birds that need shorelines. Um, and so we do a lot of work with forest birds. And, um, you know, they need a lot of different conditions. There are some birds that need really young forests. There are others that kind of take advantage of the kind of mid-age of forests. Um, and then, you know, there's some birds that need older forests. And so we try to work with a diversity of landowners, land managers, private lands, public lands, to create a diversity of, you know, forest conditions that meet the needs of a, a lot of diverse birds. So so do you give an input into, like, a pre-harvest plan to help out the, the, the birds in that? So you work with paper companies, loggers, forestry, that kind of stuff on a, whenever you can? We do. We do. We've been really fortunate. Um, I've been with American Bird Conservancy for a little over nine years, and we've had a great partnership through the Sustainable Forestry Initiative. And all the companies that, that work through the Sustainable Forestry Initiative and other certification programs to, you know, just demonstrate that they're managing sustainably. So, you know, we work with Weyerhaeuser and Hancock and, gosh, Potlatch and, uh, you know, International Paper is a big partner of ours, you know, with their fiber sourcing. And so sometimes we get to work directly with, you know, loggers and forest managers. But more often we provide them with, like, best management practices. And, you know, those vary depending on if you're working in, you know, southern pine forests or New England hardwood forests or, you know, some of the great the forests in the Great Lakes. And what we know is that, you know, foresters, loggers, professionals that work in the woods, they know how to manage the forest. And if we give them sort of the, the conditions we're looking for, quite often they say, oh, I know how to do that. You know, I know how to produce that kind of condition. Or I know how that fits into what I'm managing for for other objectives. And, you know, maybe I can make a tweak here to be beneficial to a particular bird. Or it may be that what they're already doing is creating great habitat for a lot of birds. So we just try and give them, you know, good recommendations that can fit within, you know, their forest management prescriptions, and then they can take advantage of that information. That's pretty neat. That you know, Emily, uh, Emily, this is Brad Bennett uh, from the radio station. And when, when Peter told me about having you on, I thought right away. I mean, it makes sense because I've I've known Peter for a lot of years, and I know that he is very concerned about making sure that areas that he logs, 
that he keeps them in a sustainable area where they're going to regrow. Uh, they're going to develop trees again. And when they develop trees, they naturally would develop habitat for the birds as well. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, ultimately, we all need the same thing. You know, if we're going to be successful with bird conservation, we need large areas of sustainable forest with a lot of diversity. And, you know, and if y'all are going to be successful as loggers or if, you know, um, companies that make fiber-based products or, you know, building materials, they got to have forests. And so I think that kind of common ground of how do we keep forests on the landscape? How do we keep forests? You know, that's our common ground, and we can work together to do that. Sure. Can you give us a, a just a general idea of maybe what types of birds or some particular types of birds that are really having a tough time uh, being able to continue to uh, be be bountiful and be enough uh, have enough variety to keep them going? Um, well, I'll give you a really neat example that's up there, you know, kind of close to where y'all are. Um, that's a, okay. a success story. Um, Kirtland's warblers were um, probably never very widespread. They had a kind of small range up in the Lake States. They really like young jack pine forests. And in natural systems, they would have been there because of wildfires that, you know, would set that succession back. And so sure. without those fires, they just, they plummeted down to less than 500 birds. And because of, you know, and so they ended up on the endangered species list and a lot of effort went into, you know, saving them. And it took both forest management and some control of um, cowbirds, brown-headed cowbirds that are parasites um, and nests. They lay their eggs in their nests. But the combination of controlling the cowbirds and then managing habitats to create the right kind of early young forest habitat brought those birds back. And now they're, um, they've exceeded their recovery goals. They've been delisted. They're always going to need some attention. You know, they need really specialized um, habitats. But the experts that work with them think that, you know, right now we're really managing the forest for Kirtlands. But over time, just regular forest management that creates those young forest conditions will allow them to kind of spread and, you know, be part of just more, more normal forest management systems instead of stuff that's just designed for them. Um, okay. Gosh, there's just there's so many examples. You know, most of my work is in the um, southeastern U.S., Brad, and a couple of the birds that have been suffering, it's kind of interesting. They're sort of, you know, on, on opposite ends. Um, prairie warblers are one that's declined. They need young forests, and so making sure that we've got those that are, you know, on the right, you know, kind of distribution across the landscape, um, Sure. And don't get too heavily herbicided. You know, once, you know, trees get harvested and you do site prep, sometimes people just use too much herbicide. And you can talk to the site prep folks, and they're like, yeah, sometimes we just use too much and it costs us more than it ought to. And so a little lighter touch with herbicides that still allows the new, you know, crop trees to come up, those young pine trees to do well, but allows for grasses and flowers and some little, you know, sweet gums and little um, shrubby trees, that's what prairie warblers need. So maybe a slight adjustment in, you know, how site prep's done can make all the difference for them having really good habitat. 
Wow, I never thought of that. You know, I I I love birds myself. I have uh, every every place I've ever lived, we've had a bird feeder, and we. But I uh, but I seem to think somehow that my feeding birds is going to keep them alive. But I know that that's not the case. I know that almost all natural birds have have ability to self sustain themselves by living off of nature, uh, eating off of flowers and trees and bark and all the natural things that are out there, we we just almost uh, provide extra food for birds, it seems like. You know, for the most part, Brad, that's true. But there are certain times, um, you know, we really encourage people to, you know, aside from, you know, the importance of these big forested habitats, sometimes small changes, even in people's backyards, can make a difference. And when it can make a difference is like when they're migrating. You know, you think about yes. all those yes. birds that nest in the boreal forest, and then they all pour out of, the, you know, the boreal areas and places like y'all. They migrate south, and, you know, some of those birds go to Central America. Some of them may end up in northern South America, in Colombia, and as they're traveling, you know, they'll stop for the night, or they'll stop for the day. They usually, they migrate sure. at night. And if somebody has provided some nice little native plants in their backyard that have berries on them in the fall when they're migrating, that could be what it takes to get that bird, you know, restore its energy and get ready for the next night's flight. And so, you know, for the most part, you're right. Birds take care of themselves and as long as they've got good habitats. But sometimes people providing fresh water, you know, a little bit of extra energy can make a big difference. And, you know, especially during those critical energy times at migration. Well, Emily, uh, Peter knows we're a a for-profit radio station, so we have to take one of those nasty profit (laughs) breaks right now. But we're going to take our first break. Uh, We we are, uh, uh, of course, on with uh, Peter Woods with Let the Sawdust Fly. And Peter has a great guest today, Emily Joe Williams, who's uh, talking about the need to have good cooperation between uh, harvesting of forests, uh, loggers, and the production of a habitat for birds. So we'll get back into this uh, right after this quick break. Giant redwood, the larch, the fir, the mighty Scots pine, the smell of fresh-cut timber, the crush of mighty trees. With my best girl by my side, We'd sing, sing, sing. I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay. I sleep all night and I work all day. He's a lumberjack and he's okay. He sleeps all night and he works all day. I cut down trees, I eat my lunch, I go to the laboratory. Go to the laboratory. See, Emily, I bet you didn't even know that Peter cut the music for his theme song for his show. I know. How am I supposed to come back with a straight face and talk after listening to that stirring you know, <laughs> rendition of that logging song? That's a hoot. <laughs> That's because I couldn't be a dancer oh, on the Lawrence Welk show, so I had to do something else. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, gee. Oh. Hey, uh, Brad, uh, Emily, um, Emily, would you want to elaborate a little bit more on the migration? I found it so fascinating how far these birds can migrate and go right over the Gulf. I thought, do they go on land through Central America, Mexico, down to Brazil and that? Or do they do they migrate right over the ocean, the Gulf? 
They do. They do both, actually. Um, we work with. Excuse me, that's my little terrier barking. We work with a bird called a swallowtail kite. Um, gorgeous, big raptor. You know, it's a type of a hawk. Um, they have about a four-foot wingspan. They're just black and white. They have this foot-long forked tail. And they actually used to nest as far north as, you know, where y'all are. They nested all the way up through the middle of the country into the Great Lakes. And sometime around the first part of the century, they declined. And now they only nest in the U.S. in the very southern states. Um, most of them are in Florida, and then others in, are in South Carolina, Georgia, you know, across to Louisiana and Texas. And they're big enough that we can put a transmitter on them. And we work with some great scientists in Florida, the Avian Research and Conservation Institute. And so we've been capturing these swallowtail kites on managed forests, um, we caught two last year in Georgia on some potlatch property, and we've caught some on various timber company lands. And they they do really well in these managed forest landscapes. They need big trees for nesting, but then they, they like to catch big insects over clear cuts, and they like to catch frogs and snakes along the edge of tall trees next to some of those, you know, young forests. And what we know from putting those transmitters on those birds is, they usually arrive pretty early um, in the spring, maybe late February, March, make their nest, and then at the end of the summer, they fly all the way to Brazil for the winter. And the wow. birds that nest in Florida and Georgia and South Carolina, they funnel down through Florida, pitch off either right around Tampa and further, or further south, and fly across the Gulf of Mexico to the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico. So right across the water. And they're so well made for what they do. They actually just soar right above the water level most of the time. They don't even have to, you know, really flap. They just soar. And they get enough lift just off the surface of the water to go across the Gulf of Mexico in usually about two or three days. Boy, it's amazing it's when you amazing. think, yeah, when you think about the different types of birds and how far they travel. I'm always amazed at the uh, uh, the hummingbirds. It's little bitty oh, things yeah. with these little wings, and they just never stop moving, it doesn't seem like. Right. And, you know, so they weigh less than an ounce. So you could mail them, you know, with a, with a one stamp in a letter. They wouldn't like it because they wouldn't fit well. But they're teeny, teeny little guys. And they do, they they fly nonstop across the Gulf of Mexico. Well, you know, I got to step in here, guys, because we have a migratory observation here at Hawk Ridge, and we see in the range of 70,000, 80,000 different birds that fly over the Hawk Ridge, Brad, as you know. Yeah. And my understanding is, is they don't want to fly over Lake Superior, so they funnel down to the twin ports and cross that land barrier and keep going south. So that's strange that I'm hearing this. Uh, if Lake Superior is such a deterrent to migrating birds here, but the uh, Gulf of Mexico isn't, that's uh, that's very interesting. EJ, you want to tackle that? I wonder if it has to do with the water temperature. Well, sure. Um, yeah, well, a, a lot of birds do like to migrate over land. And a lot of the um, bigger birds, like the hawks and, you know, some of those... They do tend to stay over land, and 
If, yeah. if you were to hold up, say, I don't know, a red-tailed hawk next to a swallowtail kite, you'd see the difference. You know, they're just bulkier. They don't. They can soar high when they get good thermals, but they are not made to soar across like a big water body. They're just too bulky. And swallowtail kites are just much more streamlined and much lighter weight. Um, so yes, yeah, well, Emma, Emily, that. Emily, does some of it have to do with the fact that things like hawks are? They want to fly across land because they're looking for things to eat on the way as well. Yeah, that is some of it. And, you know, most of the hawks migrate during the day, and that's because yeah. they get those thermals. You know, when the, when the you know, day starts to warm up, they can catch those thermals and keep migrating on those, um, whereas sure. most of the really small birds migrate at night. Well, look, guys, we've got to take our CBS News break here. This is very interesting, though. I mean, when we come back, we can talk a little bit more about how logging affects some of these uh, different migratory patterns. Um, so we'll be uh, coming right back with Emily Jo Williams from the uh, National Bird Conservancy and with Peter Wood, of course, the host of uh, Let the Sawdust Fly here. Uh, that happens every last Wednesday of the month on 610 KDL Radio. Peter, we're uh, we're back with Emily, and uh, it's interesting how habitat uh, creates a lot about where the birds travel. So I, I heard Emily saying that some birds love to get into the forested areas where there there has been cutting because they can get in there, get the bugs, and get frogs and other things that might be on the ground. Mm-hmm. Have you ever noticed that when you've been logging that uh that you have some of that habitat happening um what i've noticed over years from birds back when as a kid we saw very it was rarity to see a bald eagle it was yeah. very rare back in the 60s and 70s uh, for myself and and then now it's very common to see the bald eagle to us wherever we go uh seeing them swoop down nest and all that uh, EJ, would you want to talk about that just a little bit about the bald eagle? Because from our standpoint, it's just they have to be right in front of us to see them. Yeah. Oh, sure, sure. Um, well, I mean, I think I don't know of anybody that wouldn't agree that bald eagles are just a tremendous success story. And, you know, you have to give a nod to, to scientists that figured out what was driving those population declines. And, you know, and it was DDT. It was um, an insecticide that worked its way through the food chain and weakened their eggshells. And so, you know, eagles and a lot of other birds, ospreys and others, their eggshells would be so thin that when the adults, you know, sat on them to incubate them, they would actually crack. And so, you know, eagle populations plummeted just because of no, they, they weren't having young you know, at, at quantities enough to replace, you know, the, the eagles that you lose every year. And so, you know, getting DDT banned was the first step to, to bring those birds back. Um, and in some places from the edge of extinction, you know, they never plummeted in, in Alaska. They always had healthy eagle populations. But, you know, first you had to kind of clean up the environment. And I have no doubt that, you know, clean water played a role there too. You know, we had the... Um, used to have some pretty horrendous water conditions and mm-hmm. you know eagles mainly eat fish and they and they eat some carrion you know dead stuff but they eat a lot of fish so you know once that sort of 
things got cleaned up, they could reproduce successfully again. They did. They started expanding. And, you know, the protections that were there to give them a chance to come back um, and, you know, t- protection of nests, they, they're another one. You know, they're huge birds. They build huge nests and they reuse those nests year after year. So, you know, they, you've got to have some big trees for nests. And so that kind of combination of a cleaner environment, you know, no bad chemicals that were causing them not to be able to have young, then, you know, some protections for their habitat, they just expanded and they're doing great almost everywhere. And so, you know, they've been removed from the Endangered Species Act. They're still a protected species, you know, in terms of the um, Bald and Golden Eagle Protection Act, but, you know, they're doing great. And, you know, there's no reason to think they want, you know, the, the protections now are mostly, you know, you can't cut down an, an um, active nest tree and the, obviously you can't shoot an eagle. That's illegal. You know, but, you know, most, for the most part, they're, they're doing great and they just need minimal, yeah. you know, attention to they're, keep yeah. them going that way. EJ, they're very impressive. They're just magnificent to watch. I'm not a bird person watching for oh, birds, yeah. but you see them, you always want to, it's almost like it's a breathtaking to me. And one thing we don't want to see on a job site a lot of times is a nest of a bald eagle. <laughs> the reason why is, okay, now we got a situation here. we got to watch what we can do around this. It's, uh, yeah, you got to be very, very serious about it. And so if you see a bald yeah. eagle's nest, it's like, oh, no, bald eagle's nest. You want to see it about a mile away. You want to see it way <laughs> off in the distance. But for, as far as you, you, you explain to the folks out there about what was the biggest problem there with the, the chemicals and that, but... What about uh, windmill solar panels and and uh, windows? You know, because we live out in the country, no neighbors and that. We like it that way. But uh, we have birds flying into our windows every now and then. It's like whap, whap. And uh, are, is that a big enemy for birds? Oh, it is. It is. Um, wind can be an issue if it's, if it's in the wrong place. You know, um, American Bird Conservancy actually has a wind smart program that we try to work with people to not put wind in the worst place. So, you know, that that can be a problem in bad places, but wind outright is not bad. It just needs to be properly sighted. But window collisions are a huge cause of mortality. Um, We just had an incident in Chicago where over a 1,000 birds died because they ran into, you know, glass. And what happens with these, and, you know, we love these big glass buildings. You know, think of all the either office buildings or, you know, big... um, uh, basketball stadiums, you know, some of the pro um, athletic sites, they, it's just as much glass as possible. And what happens is that glass, depending on the time of day, can reflect the surrounding conditions. And so if it reflects sure. a forest, the birds will see that and they'll think, oh, it's forest, and they can't see glass. And so, but there are things that you can do. Um, there's there's actually bird-friendly glass. Um, again, American Bird Conservancy has a testing facility to test glass to see um, if birds can see it. And there's, you can put patterns on glass, and then there's some glass that actually has um, like an embedded pattern of ultraviolet. Um, kind of, it looks like little ribbons, and we can't see it, but the birds can because they see the colors differently than we do. And so we actually work with architecture schools and architects to build buildings that start out bird-friendly with this bird-friendly glass. Um, Sometimes we work to help people retroactively replace some glass. Um, 
and and I'm Peter. I'm the same way. Um, I don't. I haven't had it at my current house, but a couple houses ago in the mountains of Northeast Georgia, I had a couple of windows, and I would hear that just horrible sound. That it's nothing that sounds like a little bird hitting the window. Well, Brad and, and Emily, if I could jump in here, a lot of people might yeah. say when these birds die, is it? Oh, they're just birds. There's millions of birds out there. So what if a few birds die? <laughs> Well, you got a dart well, on your back right now, Kenny. <laughs> no, no, I, I'm playing devil's advocate here only because I hear this. I kind of hope I know what the answer is. But what would you say to people that claim that oh, a few birds die? Uh, there's more, uh, there's millions of birds out there. Well, there are millions of birds, but you know, if you think about all the different species, some species are not that plentiful, and some of the birds that we're concerned with and declines, they're actually prone to these collisions and so you know part of it would be i mean i'm a bird person so i know i'm i'm biased but you know birds are beautiful and have intrinsic value you know they bring us so much joy with their song and so if you could pretty easily prevent that which you can why wouldn't you you know i mean to me that it's just how sad to look out and and see a bird that crashed into your window and you can prevent it with there's bird tape. You can take soap and draw a little design on your window. And most people don't have a house full of problematic windows. They have one or two. Well, I was hoping you yeah. would say that they eat a lot of bugs because, Pete, we got a lot of mosquitoes out in the woods. <laughs> and if there's a, a smaller number of birds, there's more mosquitoes. I had yeah, a fly this that. today in the pickup. Can you believe it? It came alive. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. No, you're right. They do eat a lot of insects. Um, and, you know, from a a sustainable, a sustainable. Sorry about that, my Terry. Brad, you got like competition. You got competition. See, there's a Brad. there's a hawk. There's a hawk going after Emily's dog. Close the windows, quick. I know. She heard a noise in the thing. I'm in a hotel. Um, but the birds are great for forest health. They eat a lot of insects. Um, they did a study, I think in the yeah. Appalachians a few years ago, where they netted off the forest so the birds couldn't get in there. The insects ate the forest. I mean, they really decimated the trees because there were no birds to control the insects. And they got, you know. Well, and, and Emily, uh, Emily, some of this is uh, j- just real simple things that you can do. I'm reading a story right now about these windmills and the, the windmills for electricity have killed thousands and thousands of birds. And they're finding one of the answers is very simply just painting every other blade black instead of all white. The birds pick up on the difference in the blades and they stay away from it, where if they're all white, they just fly right into it. But uh, So there are little things that can change. But look, I've got to I've gotta thank you both for being on. We're, we're going to have to go into our final break here. Um, Emily, thank you so much for coming on with us this morning and giving us a little bit of insight into how forests and birds can, uh, you know, work together and, and loggers can help that situation out as well. And Peter, thank you for uh, having Emily come on with us. It's been a, a real insightful piece. Well, Brad, Emily, EJ, people out there, folks, thank you so much for taking time every day to listen about a little, another another snapshot about the timber industry. But it's amazing how much we're all interconnected. It's just you got to have the right people show up and talk about it. When you find someone like Emily, you want. I'm so thankful that you she bet. was willing to come on and talk about it from from their standpoint and how much 
we already are working with each other. It's to let the John Q. public out there know that a lot of things are being done. You just don't know it. But you'd know it if we didn't, too. Yep. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, we've got to take a break. Uh, We'll be back shortly with more. KDAL time, 1256. Brad, you win 42 degrees in Superior, 40, (laughs) 40 at the National Weather Service. It's only, what, 1257. We might see 42 like you predicted. I said 39, so I lose. uh, But my goodness, uh, very mild weather, and we're not going to complain. However, the Democrats want it to be colder, right? They want it to be absolutely colder. (laughs) Real They don't like global warming. (laughs) (laughs) Say, I wanted to mention to you and your listeners, Pete Wood and I were talking, the new hospital here in Duluth, the Essentia Health that's yes. downtown here, the high rise, that right. uh, or the skyscraper, that has bird proof glass in it. Right. Yes, I I had heard that. Yes, which is good, and I and I think it's and and also Target Center, not Target Center, but the uh, where the Vikings play, they've done something there too to keep uh, good. birds good. away from the glass windows and stuff. So there are accommodations that can be made that can kind of help everybody and help birds as well as, you know, making sure that your aesthetics are looking good and on well, the building that you're You're going to hear some music here in about 10 seconds, and we're going to leave this hour. Well, that means we'll, we'll come back with one more hour very shortly right here on 610 KDAL with uh, Sound Off. Sound Off.